Bringing voices that rise above the rumors, complicating the narrative. A podcast from youth shattering myths about loss and trauma in violence-riddled neighborhoods. This quote is taken from The Miseducation of the Negro, written by Carter, historian Carter G. Woodson and published in 1933. And it's on the subject of education and oppression, really. If you teach the Negro that he has accomplished as much good as any other race, he will aspire to equality and justice without regard to race. Such an effort would upset the program of the oppressor in Africa and America. Which, of course, raises the question, why, why would teaching African-Americans about their history, giving them complete knowledge, why would that be upsetting to those who wish to, wish to oppress them? My name is Dr. Sharon Moore. I am an author circle facilitator here at Contextos. I, before that, I was a university professor at several locations, um, UNLV and Oklahoma State University for about 13 years. Then I was a high school teacher at Ralph Ellison High in Auburn Gresham back here at home in Chicago. And now I'm here and excited to have this conversation. Hey, how y'all doing? Um, is Zay speaking? I'm D. Catestos, Autism in Residence, one of the first of many that's coming to the future. It's a new program that has started at Contestos, and I'm excited to be the first of one of many to start of it. And I've spoken on previous episodes before, and I'm just making another return. Thanks, eh? I am Dimitri, an author circle facilitator here at Contextos. It is the end of February, and every year, you know, it's Black History Month here in the United States, uh, and it's recognized elsewhere also. Uh, Charles, one of our producers who you've heard on many episodes of Complicating the Narrative, he wanted to focus on Black History Month, but more specifically focus on the way that black history is taught in America as a subset of, of course, our our American history Uh, and specifically the shortcomings. But also we're going to get into some of the history of why it is that people thought that people like Carter G. Woodson thought that black history was necessary, was something that should be focused on even more so than general American history. So, Dr. Moore, you started with a quote from uh, the miseducation of the negro and before we started recording one of the things that i was saying was that i shared with you was that i mean it's it's i guess on brand <laughs> that i <laughs> i hadn't heard his name until i a week and a half ago this month 2020 february i looked him up i'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd seen his name elsewhere but i just didn't know who he was as a person um and it wasn't until here i am a 37 year old i'm looking up who carter g woodson is and learning a lot that I, I feel like I should have gotten as part of a thorough education before now, part of my formal education. Um, I, you know, one of the things that we said before we turned in the mic is, is um, it's intentional, right? That it's not really shocking that you haven't heard of Carter G. Woodson or Ralph Bunch or a whole host of other people that we, we could toss out. Um, you go back to that quote, and there's a reason why African Americans, and frankly everybody in the country, aren't taught a full sense of American history, whether that's about African Americans or about the contributions of the Latinx community. 
people who are in power want to stay in power. And one of the ways they do that is to control the knowledge that we have, right? The flow of knowledge. Literally to control it in terms of technology, but to control it in terms of the content. And if you don't know, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? So if you've never heard of Carter G. Woodson, if you've never, uh, you know, I think Zay, you said earlier that you knew that name because you know that there's a school or you went to that school, I think. Uh, yeah, I went to uh, middle school. That was on the uh, lower, lower part of the South Side called Carter G. Woodson Middle School once upon a time that was there. And um, Kenya Simone, that used to be on WGCI, she used to order that school as well. Okay. Yeah, so. And, and one of the things I think interesting is interesting is that I, I feel pretty safe that if you go to any major city in the United States, there's probably some institution, whether it's a library or a school that's named after Carter G. Woodson, just like there's you know a boulevard in every major city, Martin Luther King, but it doesn't mean that we're taught anything about that or that right. we know anything fuller than the absolute basics. And right. if you know more, it's probably because you've done your own research as you okay. talked about, yeah. right? To find out. Yeah. And it, it almost makes me wonder just the way that it's played out. It almost makes me wonder if at some point somebody said, Hey, let's slap a name on a street or a school or a library <laughs> and then we're done with it. Right? right. And then we don't actually have to talk about or teach about or recognize who these people are fully. Um, we could talk about the ways that that plays out. Um, but Zay, I wanted to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Zay. I wanted to ask just if you could describe what your experience was like uh, in terms of being educated in school about the history of black people in America, but also more specifically about what your experience in Black History Month was like in school. For what I was taught when I was in school, well, it wasn't really like, you know, like the major thing that is, how can I put this? They didn't teach you really the important analytics of what, you know, behind a certain individual was, meaning like, for example, Colin Powell, like what he really stood for and, you know, what it, what goal he was trying to reach and what it took for him to reach to that goal. You know, those type of things like that. They didn't really break it down to for us to that type of degree, it was just more so of a, okay, he did this, this is what makes him a good person, this is why you should celebrate him. You know, it was it was just a simple, you know, that's what it is. and Like here's know, some information. Yeah, it wasn't really, you know, broken down like a real explicit answer as to why, you know, this person made a real change and impact in, in black history and in part of black history, period. Same was the, like being just, Black History Month in school, it wasn't like really like celebrated as as much as it really should be like how it was like back in the 90s, the 80s, you know, stuff like that. When it was like, you know, it was a big deal. Like nowadays, like especially when I was like younger and coming up, it didn't really, it was a big deal, but it's not like, you know, like something that's really as big as it should, you know, as it should be, you right. know, shadowed on in the light. Because it's a lot of like, untold black historians that's like really not discovered because it's not really like you said self-educated to you or taught to you by somebody who knows something about that so it's not really too many you know people that's really trying to shine a light onto that and really trying to you know bring that into the open right so it's like it's hidden jewels like within black history that we don't really know about to this day i really like that word hidden jewels right um 
Now, I'm obviously way older than you are, Zay. <laughs> so I'll talk about a different generation in Black History Month. So in the 70s, when I started into grade school, um, initially I went to a school that was called uh, Ralph Bunch, um, famous African-American, and I literally cannot tell you anything about him. So that speaks volumes about what I didn't learn when I was going to that school. I went to that school until about fourth grade. One of the unique features, at least in my educational history about that school, is that it was pretty much 50-50 in uh, black and white in terms of teachers. And there was one teacher in particular, Miss Cannon, who is still out there, and uh, she's a, she actually goes to church with my mom still. Um, she loved Black History Month, and it was a big deal for her. So it became a big deal for the school, and we always celebrated, in particular, around Martin Luther King. And I think part of that was because she was involved in the civil rights movement in terms of like being active and going out and marching and stuff. So she would put us all in the gym and we had an old record player, which you may or may not have ever even seen. So. I probably have. <laughs> right. Because, you know, I'm, I, I got grandparents. You feel? Yeah, so there we go. They probably got one of the old, you, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Old turntable. Right? Yeah. Um, so she would, she would break out uh, the record player and she put on Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And we'd all be in the gym, the hardwood floors, you know, sitting on little mats with their with their legs folded, and we'd listen to the speech. And she literally would weep, and she did it every year. Um, so, in terms of my early understanding of Black History Month, it really was all about Martin Luther King, about the Civil Rights Movement, and then in fourth grade, schools integrated, at least out where I was in the far south suburbs, and I wound up going to a school that was overwhelmingly white. And it became less so, right, mm -hmm. important. There was no version of Miss Cannon at that school. And then when I went to high school, I can honestly say I don't remember ever thinking about Black History Month. I don't remember it ever really being present. And at that school, which was Thornwood High back in the day, um, I made up like 6% black, blacks in the, in the building. So it just wasn't a thing that was celebrated. So any knowledge that I have about black history really comes from my own like work in that area because my PhD is in African-American literature and it's like sort of tangentially connected. I know things, but only because I chose to study them, not because anybody in my K through 12 education was really connected to it except for Miss Cannon. Yeah, and we, Charles and I had a conversation about that too, about our experiences what it was like in terms of our educational experience during Black History Month. So Charles, what was your, thinking back to when you were in school, what was your experience like during Black History Month? A whole lot of Martin Luther King. That's number one. You hear about, I'm talking about, and it's not, Black History Month wasn't really uh Cause I went to school in the suburbs. I went to school in, in Calumet City. So back then, before it was transitioning, it was mixed. Mm. When I was in school, you know what I'm saying? It was it was Hispanics, blacks, and whites. Okay. Um, this before the South suburbs started to like transition a little bit more. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. when we were growing up, Black History Month was all about Martin Luther King and only him. You know, all you did was watch. I have a dream. You watched the. Uh, you watch the the animated version. You you watch the 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 uh, I have a dream speech, and everything was about Martin Luther King. But you never got a real insight that there's more black leaders than just Martin Luther King. 
you know, I definitely give him um, praise for it. But that's the only thing they even talk about with him. It's just Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, I have a dream. I have a dream. You never hear about the redistribution of wealth. You never hear about the Million Man March. You never hear about none of this, you know? Mm-hmm. All you hear about is the basically him trying to stop segregation. <clears throat> right. Um, my So my experience, uh, I grew up in New York, in the Bronx, and... Surprise, surprise, it was very, very similar. <laughs> um, my when I think about Black History Month, I mean it's I'm I'm really trying to think hard about specific memories of learning black history in school. Because there wasn't much of it. That we we didn't get much black history. I mean, in February or otherwise. And when we did in February talk about black history, it was the I Have a Dream speech. It was Martin Luther King. And it was kind of check that box and Done. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately, now that I have a daughter who's in fifth grade, who is being educated in public schools and educated at home. um, And it's actually something my wife pointed out to me. She said that one of the reasons she, we as a family feel really strongly about what's happening in classrooms and schools during Black History Month is that yes, our daughter is going to get education about the contribution of black people to our country at home. She's going to get that. And one of the things that my wife pointed out um, to me and to teachers is that it's not just about the black kids in the classroom. Like America is the way that it is in many ways, because it's not only that we black people in America didn't get this education, but also that the broader American populace didn't get that education also. And so if, as as educators, our goal is to, you know, complicate the narrative, shift the paradigm, change the way that things are, then that's not just for what Carter G. Woodson points out in, in the sense that it's about how we think about ourselves as black people. It's also about how white America understands the full context of American history. And so today, one of the things that why I'm, I guess, adamant about black history's place in education is that it's not just, it's really important for for young black people to get a full context of, of who we are and what's happened in America, but it's also really important um, for young people of other races to get that full context also, not just about black contributions to American history, but about the actual full context of what's happened in America. Yeah, that, you know, you speak to something so, so important, particularly in the in the current political climate that, that we're in. When you listen to folks who, many folks, not all, but many folks who are strong, strong supporters of Trump who are part of his base, They like to talk about all the contributions that white America has made to America, as if America wouldn't exist without the Europeans who came over. And I'm not trying to suggest at all that obviously um, Europeans have played a a role in America, but blacks and in the Japanese and obviously the Native Americans because it was their soil. I mean, it just goes on and on. America is America because of all the people who are in America. And part of what allows folks to say the kinds of things that they say about how America is America or let's make America great again, which in essence means let's make America whiter again, is because they've only been taught one version, right? One very, very, very narrow 
perspective, from a very, very narrow perspective, about how America came to be and what makes America run, right? And so this notion of the oppressor, of course the oppressor doesn't want Zay in his school at Carter G. Woodson Elementary School to learn about all the contributions that have been made by African Americans who are scientists, who are doctors and lawyers and engineers and teachers and and musicians and they don't want you to know that right because if you know that then you have something to aspire to but if all you ever learn is that those things are dominated by white folks it seems other somehow and harder somehow for you to reach i don't know yeah i agree with that because like you said like the government don't want like a young african-american male especially you know growing up in chicago you know, I'm from, like, the south side of the lower part of the city. So it's not like, you feel me, what you would expect as far as, like, my people and as far as, like, my age group, which is, like, 18 through, what, 21 through 24. You know, most young people around that age group don't really make it to see past, like, 25, 26, or even 30. Right. And they just feel like, you know, they don't think that we have a, a good head on our shoulders because of all the violence that's going on. When little do they know, it's really people who that are like me that is aware and like focused of what's going on. As far as like self knowing, you got self educate yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't be you know just out here and you don't have any type of knowledge. Because if you don't have knowledge, you're not aware and you're not focused of what's going on. You know the government could throw something on the TV today and you could believe it, but if you don't have your own research behind it, how can you know if it's true or not? Right. So. It be things like that, and for, that goes like far as black history. It's things that's told in history that's, you know, probably not even the truth. You know, so how am I going to be able to believe this if I didn't do my own research? It's the same thing with what they speak with, like you know, the Bible and all that stuff. But that's a whole another topic for another story. <laughs> you know, we don't get into the logistics of that. I feel but, you on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, and it's like not. No, I, but I was going to say, um. The government just try to keep us limited to like short to like one thing because they feel like we're not they 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 overlook or they underestimate our smartness because I see it a lot in everyday society like for example like with the Chicago Police Department I understand they have a job to do but it's like how they handle their job and certain ways that they do their job they they know it's not right yeah. and then they they come across like you know African American people and they feel like you know some of us don't know what's going on or not, you know, focus or well, right. what's going on. Cause y'all know I'll be having a lot of encounters with them right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they be feeling like, you know, cause I was young, black, you know, already a target on my back cause I got dreads and I'm black and all, you know, that type of yeah. stuff. So I just try to like, you know, be aware of what's going on. And it's the same thing with black history. If you're not aware of your history, you're not aware of, you know, fully of what's going on within yourself. Yeah. And so that, that's a really good example of one of those areas where, I mean, we, it's so when I talk to talk to people about Black History Month, sometimes I get an eye roll. It's kind of like, uh, oh, here we go, Black History Month. Every month is Black History Month. Like I get that in theory. Like I understand why it should be that way. Yes, but it's not right. right. And as a result of that, you do have. I mean, especially in situations where it, you're talking about the South Side of Chicago, there are um, people working in areas. And it's true for police. It's true for teachers. It's true for just everybody living in America. If you have like you were saying, Dr. Moore, if you have a skewed sense of who is who in America 
and what has happened, then, yeah, it does lead to bias that is ingrained. If you've learned that all the great people that did all the great things are white, (laughs) and if you've learned or see on the news or see in headlines that people who are doing things that, you know, are not constructive, those people are look like the black people that I pull over, then you walk up to that situation with with an internal bias, right? With a bias that's been reinforced by what we see in the media, but also reinforced by our our education system. And we've been, you know, we're in a situation where you you sit in a classroom and you receive that knowledge and you're taught. Um, But like you were saying, and like we've been talking about, you do have to it's unfortunate that you do have to go out and find that that truth that you have yeah. to go in and seek it out yeah. and seek it out. You have to go and supplement the, right. the, the education that you you got and in many cases paid for um, with that additional truth that, that you've missed that well, not that you've missed, but that's been neglected and that hasn't been taught, you know, uh, in in the 1980s. Um, so before you were around, say, but in the 1980s, that was way before, man. <laughs> yeah, right. But in the 1980s, uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, one of one of the like major issues during that period had to do with the, what they called the culture wars, and the culture wars were all about like what was taught, who got to teach it, and what people had access to. And it's interesting because now we're you know almost 40 years later. We are 40 years later, mm. and we're fighting the same fight. We're having another culture war about who teaches what and what 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 should you know. And, you know, in the 80s, it was there was a move toward multicultural education and having ethnic studies programs at universities and black studies programs. People were all kinds of up in arms about that because, you know, the understanding was, you know, there are great works. There are great thinkers. And we're already teaching those thinkers. We're already teaching those works. But those works were all white and they were overwhelmingly white and male. Right. And so people from all these other groups who have made all these other contributions were like, wait a second, we need to open this up. We need to know all these things. And, you know, I lived through that period and, you know, naively thought, okay, we we won that fight. And yet 40 years later, here we are sitting in this room having this conversation and we're fighting the exact same fight. Because people are still saying, you know, we don't even need African-American History Month or there's no reason to have a Women's History Month. But that's all theoretical. Yeah. And I think it. it, Yeah, I thought about about that a lot, about that sentiment a lot. And I I think about the word, the term colorblindness a lot. And one of the things that I feel like I've noticed and just hearing the way that people talk about race today um, is that I remember growing up in the 80s and 90s and people thinking that you know, colorblindness was the solution. And I think it's a, it can be dangerous because there are lots of ways that you could look at that and say, yeah, that totally makes sense. And it does make sense to say, yes, you're going to be my friend or I'm going to work with you or whatever it is, regardless of your color. I don't see color. It's it's what it is, right? I see the, the person you are on the inside. The problem though with that is that we live in a society where color, where race has been made such an important factor. And and not only am, am, am I talking about how much melanin is in your skin, but all of the factors that go into who you are as a person. And, and we've built up a society that has had a lot of things happen because of race. And then we get to a point where a chunk of society wants to say, all right, let's start the race here. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, if you're running a marathon and somebody's had a, a two hour head start and then you say, you know what? Let's make everything equal. Let's just start here and say 
right now is the starting point of this race, it, it doesn't it's not fair in the sense that you're saying, OK, we're all equal now. But the way that we've been treated, the opportunities that we have that we've had have not been equal. Um, and so I feel like today and when I mentioned how people react when we talk about Black History Month, for example, or talking about educating people about about black history. I think there's a reluctance to talk about race today in the in the sense that there are people who think that, yeah, all the problems have been solved and we've had a black president. And so why are we still talking about race? Like, hasn't that problem been addressed? Haven't we, you know, gotten past that? Do we still need a black history month? I mean, honestly, we ain't even really passed it because it's still, you know, racism going on today when you turn on your television. You know what I'm saying? So you walk out of your house. Yeah. You walk out of your house, you know. We got a racist president. Like, we really got, like, a, a racist president who runs, you know, the entire country. And it's black people that, that you know what I'm saying, we don't agree with what he, you know, what he stand for, but we got to stand behind because he controls everything. Well, he doesn't control everything. It's more another thing, another conversation, you know what I'm saying, for another day with the government analytics, but we're gonna say Donald Trump controls everything. We're gonna we're gonna say that for <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, man, it's it's really going on. Like when you I, I forgot it was like a speech he was saying when he was like he wants to make America great again. But his definition of making America great again was was racism. Was stuff that happened like back in the fifties and the forties. Exactly. Like when he says make him <clears throat> whenever he says or any of his people say Let's make America great again. I just want to know what year do you want to turn to? Exactly. Do you want to turn back to 1954 before we have the civil rights movement? Mm. Are you trying to get before 1863, before the Emancipation Proclamation? Like where exactly was America so great? And who are you talking about great for? Exactly. Right. Because um, <clears throat> certainly if you're talking about African-Americans and greatness, we're, you know, we're, we're working towards it. And Dimitri, you. You, you talked about our first black president. I remember when he was elected, one of the things that were, there were articles everywhere about America has entered this post-racial period, right? It's mm-hmm. funny now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hilarious now. Like we're, we're post-race. There's no more race. And, and yet we chuckle in this room, right? Because we know. That's, as, that's as false. Said, right, it's false, right? Um, you walk out your door on any given day. I don't care where you are in this country, racism is alive and well. And as you said, we have a president who can honestly say things like, well, you know, there are bad players on both sides when we're talking about the horror that happened in Charlottesville, right? Mm-hmm. Not. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Moore, you mentioned that in your experience with education about black history in school, um, one of the things that was focused on in terms of the experience that you had was Martin Luther, one of the people was Martin Luther King, who's Martin Luther King, right? He, right. He's a, a titan um, in so many ways. And Charles and I talked about this also, about the the focus in almost an, I don't know, I guess we could read a lot into the focus on Martin Luther King. Right. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you two why it is that you think that when February rolls around, um, or even if, you know, some teacher is being above and beyond and teaching about the history of black people in America some other time outside of February, why it still is such a, a, 
primary focus on Martin Luther King. And I didn't know not only that, but a narrow focus on Martin Luther King giving the I Have a Dream speech, as opposed to the other aspects of all the things that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, um, and all the other people that could be included if we're talking about the entire history of our country and Black people's contribution to it. So I wonder why it is that you think that there seems to be such an undue, I would I would say, or uh, I guess maybe not undue, but um, disproportionate focus on Martin Luther King. I feel like, I guess the impact and the amount of, you know, influence that he he touched when he went to um, D.C. and made his speech. And I guess the statement and picture that he was trying to paint was eventually made over the years. And so I guess that's why it was pushed, you know, so strongly in the Oslo because I feel like, you know, certain people just feel like that's more so of a, a band-aid to sweep everything that's, you know, that America did wrong to, you know, put under the rug. And, you know, they feel like that's a part of another, another what I was saying, like a bandage. Also, another part of a bandage for like slavery, you know, because... It's been, you know, articles that feels like, you know, we should be paid back for slavery. Reparations. Yeah, definitely. And so I totally agree with that because it's been so many years of hurt that it's caused, like, I feel like a permanent scar as far as, like, with judgment amongst, you know, African-American people. Because, like you guys said, it's been 40 years later of what they said racism supposedly in. Right. I don't, I don't see that being realistic. You know, um, I I think uh, when I, when I think about the focus on Martin Luther King, I agree with what you're saying, Zay. That like, you know, he when you think about that speech, and and about like integration of schools and like those things happened, right? I think as a as a society, and maybe it's just like a universally human thing, we focus on icons, right? And the and part of that has to do with like it it's easily digestible. Right. So if you go back historically, you know, we can name Harriet Tugman and we can name Frederick Douglass Mm -hmm. and then we can name Martin Luther King. And then we maybe jump forward and name um, uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, maybe put in Oprah in there somewhere as well. Right. But we look at these people and they're, you know, they become like the black icons and I'm not detracting from them at all because there's a reason why they're iconic. But if you only focus on the iconic, it's simplistic, right? It's it's it is easily digestible, and so if you're coming up, you know, teachers have you know frenzied lives, right? So right. <laughs> if you're coming up with like your syllabus, it's easy to pull that out because there's so many resources about it. And I'm not saying that people are lazy or anything like that. It's just it's easy to focus on the icons, and it takes much more work, not just from the teacher side, but from the individual side, <clears throat> in terms of you know educating ourselves um, to fill in those gaps, to actually fill in all the blanks in between. You know, Martin Luther King was one member of a gigantic movement. And yes, he was the figurehead, but there are all these other people, some of them anonymous, but also people that we knew, like Ralph Abernathy and others, who we don't talk about. And I think that, like, totally outside of race, I just think that it's easier to focus on very narrow things because you can like span a hundred years by looking at five people than it is to dig deeply and to think more complicated and complicate the narrative right Mm -hmm. about about uh, martin for example because he wasn't just about 
um, civil rights for African Americans, he you know he talked all about uh, class, right? I mean that was a huge yeah. thing. He was out there marching about the war, but we don't talk about those things because it not. I don't think it's even necessarily that we don't want to. I just think it's a more complicated thing to do it. Then I feel like the way he was praised, like, like I when I when I used to go to church, like, I don't go to church as, as much as I used to. I think I need I need to start going back. <laughs> I, I really do. I'm free. I need to start going back. But when I was going to church, like a lot when I was younger, I remember like it was either always around Black History Month and Easter, and it was another holiday. I forgot what holiday. Christmas. I don't think there's probably okay. I don't know. Probably, I don't know. But it was it was always Martin Luther King like okay being pushed like so much. Huh. But he was pushed more so than any other black historian that you know that I've heard of or I've come across. So yeah. that was weird to me. Yeah, and I think I mean if I were to to form a hypothesis, I'd say part of that might be because he was a reverend and the son of a reverend, right? Yeah, that. Um, and so he was closely tied to the church for sure. One of the things that I think comes up a lot with Martin Luther King is he's often contrasted with Malcolm X, which mm-hmm. I, I always find interesting that it's kind of a an or situation, not an and situation when people talk about them. And I think a big part of that is the way that Martin believed that change would happen in America. He believed that through nonviolence, America would see that we are in no way being aggressive. We black people are are in no way being aggressive, but are the victims of aggression. And through that would, the American public would say, hey, this isn't fair. Um, And it wasn't until I was in a, and and I've heard that, and I I heard Malcolm and Martin kind of pit against one one another for a long time, hanging on that nonviolence issue. Um, And it really did cause me to think, and I think a lot of people have this misconstrued idea of who Malcolm X was and that he was for violence, that he was a violent person because he was not a proponent of nonviolence. And it wasn't until I was an adult and and discovered Stokely Carmichael was marching side by side with um, Martin, who said that the mistake that Martin makes in in believing in nonviolence being the way to make change, and you can talk about whether or not he was right or wrong about that, um, it's a complicated issue. (laughs) Um, But what Stokely said was that that assumes that America has a conscience, that America is going to see that unfair treatment of black people while they're being nonviolent. And because America has a conscience, change their ways. And Stokely said, that's the flaw. It's a flaw in your reasoning, because history has not shown us that America has a conscience when it comes to black people. That's true. I feel that's true. Because I want I mean. It's, it's it's not a hundred percent true. It's like 50, 50, 50. <laughs> I say that because it's you know it's certain states where it's like you know they did look out for black people. We ain't gonna you feel me? I ain't gonna knock Chicago like during slavery. Yeah, they're definitely white allies throughout American history for sure. Yeah. Um, yes. Now, now to them, I'll shout them out. Uh, now that, that's the fifty. That's like all right. They looked out. They cool. They really you know. But it's like the other fifty. That's like. Yeah, we ain't really, we ain't rocking with them. That's not how we, yeah. (laughs) We just gonna have to fall back from them real quick. You know, they on another type of time right now. So, You know, uh, Carmichael believed that that, you know, that that was the flaw, as you said. And perhaps, you know, perhaps it was a flaw um, because you can't control somebody's conscience, that's for sure. But part of what I think, you know, Martin was really, focused on what we could control. And it wasn't about necessarily whether or not 
the opposition had a conscience. It was about how do we behave in response to perhaps they're not having a conscience, right? Because, you know, although we want them to move, we want society to change. I can't make them change, but I can control what I do. And I'm not taking a position one way or the other on, on nonviolence or on violence. And Malcolm, as you said, he wasn't, it's not that he was endorsing going out and shooting people, but he said, like, if somebody hits me, I'm going to hit you back. He didn't say, I'm going to go out of my house and I'm going to hit you first. He simply said, I have a right as an American that if you strike me, I'm going to strike you back. Um, and, you know, it, it's unfortunate that, you know, Malcolm's assassinated in 1965 and then in 1968, Martin's assassinated and we don't ever get the opportunity for to see what might have become of their allegiance, because I believe that that's the, the direction that they were going, um, what would have happened? Because certainly there are plenty of things that they united about, obviously about race and about racial justice, but also about poverty, also about education, also about self-betterment. And it was it was going, you know, the, the, the current was certainly going in the direction of that being the case, and then that opportunity was taken away from us. And I, I often wonder, where would we be where would Chicago be if the vacuum of leadership, you know, if the vacuum of leadership hadn't been created by the assassinations of the 60s, including, obviously, um, Fred Hampton as well? Wait, what do you mean by, like, like um, by that? By that uh, about what part? The last part where you was like, what would be created without the leaders or with the leaders? Yeah, well, I'm, um, I know it could be misconstrued that I'm trying to say that we haven't had black leaders since, because we have, obviously. But... Those two iconic figures of the 60s, right. um, Malcolm and Martin, when we think about them historically, people historically tend to pit them against each other. And the truth of the matter is they probably had way more points of, of, of way more points where they overlapped than points where they're just absolutely disagreed and they would have had conflict. And I think that the, the older Malcolm, the Malcolm who had made the trip to Mecca and came back and saw things a bit differently, I think that Malcolm and I think the the Martin who was expanding his horizons beyond just the civil rights movement to include all sorts of other struggles, conversations with, um, you know, about uh, the Mexican farm worker, for example, that we were going in a direction where the two of them might have been aligned, which, you know, we're talking enormous powers just by virtue of sheer numbers of people mm. who would have been following those two leaders. All right. Um, and then they were gone, like literally, like, you know, bullets fly, they're gone. And although people picked up the mantle, like Jesse Jackson, and he starts Operation Push, there was still like this hole created, literally created in like a the social conscience in the fabric of black people in this country when those two leaders left, when they were taken from us. Yeah, I think part of that, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think part of what they did, part of what, what made them such titans in, in the way that we remember them is that they not only spoke to black people, they spoke to broadly America also and honestly about what was happening, about what the experience was like for black people, but also beyond America. I feel like one of the things that we lost was they were they represented the black experience 
to people outside of our country. And so they would meet with world leaders or meeting with the British Parliament and explaining what the black experience is like in America. And I feel like, I mean, I wasn't around in the 60s, but I would imagine I watch um, part of my my education after my formal education in black history was watching on YouTube interviews with Malcolm abroad and just hearing the way that he explained to people what it's like to be a black man in America. And it's really sad that it's very similar to the experience today in many ways. Uh, And so I feel like one of the things that we, that I mean, has to have had a detrimental effect is that we lost those sort of spokespeople who could speak authentically about the black experience in America in such a way that people outside of America understood it. Um, Of course, you could also argue that there are many people outside of America who, who got that and saw what was going on in America as crazy because it was. Um, Which is why, for example, Baldwin found peace elsewhere Mm -hmm. and had to go somewhere else to get the peace to write. Another thing goes back to the, um, why uh, the oppressor don't like when we educated, like young black educated like that. They also don't like when we have, you know, money to back us up. So like when you got financial stability, like, you know, you got certain knowledge to do certain things and to make certain moves, they feel intimidated by that. I noticed that a lot because it's like when they see you in certain spaces or watch how you carry yourself, it's like they're not kind of like some of them not really expecting it. They like it's confusing. Yeah, you know one of one of the things that Baldwin said once in trying to explain really this this thing that that Carter G. Woodson was talking about about how the it upsets the oppressor. He he made this analogy and he said. If black people move out of the position that white America expects us to be in, it absolutely like is jarring. So like if you think back about when President Obama was elected, it literally was jarring to the to the nation state. And the way that Baldwin explained it, he said it would be as if you walked outside, you know, it's eight o'clock in the morning, but the, the moon is out and the stars are shining if black people move out of the orbit that they're supposed to be in because whiteness and power and everything has always been defined against that fixed position. And all of a sudden you move out of that fixed position. I'm educated. As you said, Zay, I have a little money in my pocket. I got a little bit of power. I got my own company. I don't know what to do with that because that's not where you're supposed to be. And what does it mean for me if you, black person, are not right. where you're supposed to be or where I believe you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is that that oppression that keeps things largely, <laughs> or that, that hinders progress, right? Thinking about how we've said that we've supplemented our, our black history education, and just the way that that, that power is maintained, that the, the status quo is maintained in America, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking you to, I, I want to know from you two, do you think that, are we at a place now where Black History Month, as it stands, should be a thing? So, that, I mean, the, I guess the, the alternative, right, would be to really do it for real, it would be to really just teach history for real, um, which would, in many ways, you could argue, kind of do away with the need to have a specific month set aside to, to talk about Black history. Um, so I guess I'm wondering... Do you think we're at a place now where it is likely <laughs> that schools will and could teach a fuller version of American history as opposed to teaching black history as a thing that is taught during February? 
I feel like depending on what the topic and subject is, the schools, once again, this goes back to the government. The government controls everything that's going on in these schools. They know the type of history that they're teaching these kids as far as math, reading, science, um, social studies, you know, for whatever foreign language class you take. They know all these things. So I'm pretty sure they're aware of, you know, what they're putting into the classrooms. So it's, it's all it all depends about, you know, what they want, you know, want the kids to learn. Because, like I said, compared to now when I was in school to kids in school now, it's not the same no more. Certain activities and curriculums is not, you know, pushed the same anymore. Certain histories and certain lessons that you learned to school isn't, isn't really taught anymore. It really is so, like, over time, it has become an important factor. And that goes back to the, I remember the conversation we were having with me just about, like, our education system, how we feel like, you know, it's not working because it's certain stuff that this, the school system is teaching that, you know, is outdated. So, you know, you got to find something else for the children to have as far as, like, to retain new information. That goes back to these unhidden jewels. I mean, did I say that right? Okay, I'll just make sure I said that right. But these unhead jewels of history, you know, especially in black history, because black history, like we were just talking about, it's not really taught in schools as as much or really isn't as pushed as much as it really supposed to be. Because if it was, it would be certain things that we would know. Like, for example, the Carter G. Wilson. Right, Carter G. Wilson, right? <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't be miseducated, as he said. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, when when I think about that question, Dimitri, from a – from the perspective of an educator, um, w theoretically, it would be wonderful if we were at a place in 2020 where we did not need an African-American History Month. But we aren't in that place. Um, I think ideally we would teach American history and people would understand that American history is multifaceted, it's complicated, it's messy, it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's all kinds of things. It isn't just a single thing. And again, this goes back to what I was saying about simplicity. Like, in order to teach American history, in order to teach American literature, we have to be willing to go into the messy places. We have to be willing to mess up, to like rub a little bit the narrative about manifest destiny, about the great founders who right it's not to say that we didn't have those founders we did expand west but it was really messy process it was really ugly bloody. and it was really bloody right and we need it like as educators as uh educational departments we need to be able to have those conversations among ourselves before we can ever even think about bringing it into the classroom and I just don't think we're there. So there are certainly pockets of places where people are getting a fuller sense of what's happening. And yes, we still have, you know, February set aside as African-American History Month. And it's probably going to last for a very long time because we're just not at a place as a country where we are willing to have those messy conversations, particularly not now in this climate, maybe in 20 years, maybe. In I hope years. not in 20, 40 years. Cause then, you feel me? Y'all might not be around. And I need y'all around to have a conversation. Wow. So, Damn, just, <laughs> no, I say you're gonna have the mic and you're gonna be helping people, right? You're gonna you're gonna be leading, like leading the charge.
I mean, I listen, I, I hope, I really hope that I am wrong, that in 20 years, universities and high schools and elementary schools are teaching a full picture of what America, how America came to be and what it is. I just don't have a lot of faith that that's the direction that we're going in this moment. That could, feel, that could change at any point. I don't really feel like it's a legit answer to that, though, because... You know the America that we do know, they try to perceive it to be, you know, what it, what what they, you know. Let me try to put this in words correctly because I keep saying, you know, and that's not really clarifying. So what I'm basically saying is like the things that America has shown us, and over time and through history, that from what I've seen, it hasn't been what we would say is a positive or the American dream. I, and I agree. So, and what I'm saying is, <clears throat> you could be in the classroom. Right. In 10 years from now, maybe I'm not here, but in ten, 10 years from now, maybe you're in the classroom and in your classroom, you are teaching this fuller picture, right? And and maybe other authors from other circles are also in classroom spaces and they're also teaching a fuller picture of what it means to be an American, of what America is, about the history of how we came to be. But and I, And I hope that that comes to play. But those are individual pockets. But if we're talking about the whole nation, about whether or not the nation will be in a space where overwhelmingly young people are being taught a fuller and truer picture of this place, that I do not have confidence in. I have the utmost confidence in you, but I don't have that much confidence in the nation state to do the right thing. All right. Zay, as we were looking at some Carter G. Woodson quotes, there was one that caught your attention. Would you mind sharing that with us? He said, if the Negro in the ghetto must internally be fed by the hand that pushes him in the ghetto, mm. he will never become strong enough to get out of the ghetto. I kind of agree and disagree with that because right. I feel like, you know, it's possible to get out through other ways of the ghetto, but at the same time, if you really got to, like, if you really got to do what you got to do, and it might not be the best way that you want to do it. By all means, you got to make it happen. But that's what we kind of get misconstrued at. I feel like because nowadays some people don't really know what it's like to really experience what the ghetto or know what a ghetto really is. Mm -hmm. Some people might say they lived or been through it. Yeah, that's cool. But do you really like have a house or where it's like, all right, it's, it's like six of y'all in a two-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. You feel me? And if you don't pay like a light bill or something, or you got to pay the rent, mm -hmm. and it's due by tomorrow. Right. So it's, it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that where I feel like, okay, that's what, you know, it's pushed by the hand. You got to do what you got to do because push came to shove. You didn't want to do it, but you got to make it happen. Right. Now, on the other hand, you got like full, you got both mom and dad in the house. You got food in there and everything. Right. But your peoples can't get you this and that for this week or this month, whatever the case is. But you got a roof over your head, you got clothes over your back, and you got light, heat, gas, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you say you're struggling because you can't get the mice that just came out or something <laughs> like that or a Gucci shirt or something. Right, it's a slightly different situation. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? So right. it's like, um, that 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 type of stuff really be, it, it kind of like gets under my skin because it be people that really go through stuff out here and there's people that really don't, you know. But, they don't really got to go through it, but they it's people that do admit, like, even though they ain't got to go through it, they chose to go through it, even mm. though they didn't have to, opposed to the people who they didn't want to go through it, but this is what it was, so they had to go through it. Right. 
So that's why I feel like that's like 50 50 if that kind of makes sense in a way. Yeah, I mean, the struggle is real, right? And I think what, what one thing that, that came to mind as you were talking just now was that, you know, people sometimes talk about people who are in difficult situations who are living in poverty, for example. Exactly. And they have this idea of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but you don't have boots. Right. So you're like, I, I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> exactly. Except, you know, you didn't let me walk into the shoe store to get those boots. Exactly. <laughs> so what am I supposed to pull myself up I with? I walked in and you arrested me. Right. Exactly. Right. Accused me of stealing some boots. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, Zay. I mean, I, I, this whole idea about, you know, pulling your yourself up by the bootstraps. Again, it assumes that you have the boots or the shoes or you have access. But there's a reason, you know, there's a reason why people say that, right? I mean, the reason why that there's a, there's reasons behind why that saying has lasted so long because it's simplistic mm -hmm. because it doesn't complicate the reality of the lives that people are living all over this country living here in Chicago like it, it doesn't you don't have to think like I don't have to think about what's his life like what was his childhood like what's happening in Roseland what's going on in back of the yards like I don't have to ask those questions because I can just say simply well Zay, you want a better life? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It lets me completely off the hook. I don't I don't even have to think about it anymore. Like I know that that's out there. You work really hard and you can do anything. It's simple and it's easy and it lets me sleep at night. It's also completely disingenuous. It's not true. It's just the kind of ugly lies we tell ourselves so that I don't have to see what's happening to my brother on the other side of the street. I don't have to even recognize that my brother exists because I can just tell you, well, work harder, Zay. It'll be all right. Right. And then when you work hard in the ways that perhaps you have access to work hard in, I'm going to demonize you for it. Right. Right. I definitely have I want to thank you guys for a wonderful conversation. And I feel like uh, it's a conversation that needs to be had. I feel like it's a conversation teachers should be having. I mean, just broader society should be having it's something that we don't we tend not to think about until february rolls around uh if we do think about it in february so i want to thank you guys for coming in for contributing for complicating the narrative um and we'll see you guys soon hey thanks for listening to the complicating the narrative podcast we hope you like this episode you can hear more episodes on apple podcasts spotify google podcasts and your favorite streaming services Complicating the Narrative is brought to you by Contextos. Contextos uses the power of personal narrative to promote healing and reflection and to foster critical thinking and dialogue to provoke change.